And while the kids are heading out, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Philemon. And the book of Philemon is on page 837 in the Bible that's there in the pew. If you brought your own Bible, you'll find it right after Titus, right before the letter to Hebrews. It's very easy to miss. In these last couple of weeks, I hope you've learned by now that Philemon is one of the shortest letters of the New Testament. But I, more importantly, I hope you've learned that I find it to be one of the most important books in the Bible that we have. And if you've been with us, and if you haven't, that's okay. The reason why I think it's one of the most important books of the Bible that we have is because Philemon offers us a real-life picture. A real-life picture of what the gospel looks like. Of what living the resurrection looks like in everyday community. If you haven't been with us, let me just recap again the setup before we get into this letter. Paul writes in an attempt to bring two people estranged from each other back together. While he's in prison, Paul, he meets a fugitive slave named Onesimus, and he leads him to faith in Christ. Providentially, it just so happens, Paul also knows Onesimus' master, Philemon, a man he has also discipled in the faith. Now, Onesimus has wronged his master, Philemon, by running away. By law, Philemon has every right to punish Onesimus. But Paul is writing this letter trying to accomplish something different, a different outcome. He's trying to orchestrate reconciliation between these two men. Now, during this sermon series, if you've been with us, we've been reading this letter repeatedly, and we're going we're to do so again, because we've been trying to look at this letter from the perspective of each of the main players. So far, we've walked a mile in the sandals of Onesimus, Philemon, and Paul. And there's just one last point of view we need to take in reading this letter. And that's our own perspective as the body of Christ. Now that, when you, if, you, if, you've been, if you've been reading this with us, and if you hear it in just a moment, that might sound a little strange. Because as we get into it, this, this really reads like a personal note from Paul to Philemon. It, it can feel a bit like we're eavesdropping on someone else's private conversation. And yet, if you have that Bible open, we're not going to read it, but at the very first two verses, Paul makes it clear that while this letter is specifically for Philemon, he's writing it for him, his intention is that this letter is going to be read aloud to all of the believers in the church who gather in Philemon's house. So that means centuries later, we are part of that company. We are part of the believers that Paul hopes will learn through this situation. This, that we will glean from this beautiful representation of how the good news, the gospel, can transform not only our individual lives, but our relationships with one another. So if you got those Bibles open, listen one more time to this letter from Paul to Philemon. We'll be starting in verse 4. Paul writes, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, 
who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, what is the gospel according to Philemon? You're going to find today in this sermon that we are going to recap some places that we've been in this series, but we're also going to have in many ways a refresher course on the gospel, which I don't think is ever a bad thing. So, what is the gospel according to Philemon? As we have, keep your Bibles open as we pour over this letter one last time, what I really want us to see this time around is the parallels between the actions encouraged by this letter and the work Jesus has done for us through the cross and the resurrection. Now, again, let's remember the context. Onesimus is a runaway slave, right? He has violated the law. He has incurred a legal debt, Meaning, he has violated the law, so the law is out of balance. There, there are consequences that have to be faced in order for justice to be served, for things to be set right. So there's a legal obligation that Onesimus has. But Onesimus has also incurred, as you pick up from this letter, possibly a financial burden as well. There's a financial debt hanging over his head. Potentially something that he took from, his, from Philemon or just a loss of income as a servant as part of Philemon's household. And what you also get, gather from Paul's writing, I mean, this is just sort of reading it a little bit into the text, is Onesimus doesn't have the means to repay Philemon. He's got nothing. His future, therefore, looks bleak, right? I mean, he can live in denial and keep running, but his future looks bleak because there's been a crime, and that means there's going to be punishment. There are penalties that he's amassed, penalties that are awaiting him, possibly even death, which was a typical, as I've told you before, and, and perfectly legal punishment for a runaway slave. But yet in this letter, what we hear is Paul offering himself for the life of Onesimus. What, Paul, what, what Onesimus owes, Paul puts down his guarantee to make good for it. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. If Onesimus has wronged you in any way, I'll cover the cost. If Onesimus stole anything when he run, ran away, estimate the damage and transfer the charges to me. If you spent any money in searching for Onesimus, just tell me how much you spent and put it on my tab. If you've suffered any financial loss because of Onesimus' absence, send me the bill and charge it to my account. Paul is paying the price. Whatever it is, all of it, to redeem Onesimus, to set him free. Paul is transferring the legal, the financial, and the personal obligation of Onesimus to himself. 
Beloved, right here, in day-to-day practical terms, we have the gospel. We have the gospel reflecting Jesus' work of redemption. That's the first aspect of the gospel according to Philemon. Redemption. We owe God our lives. We owe God our lives. We were created to glorify God by serving each other. But the reality of our circumstances is, across the board, is that while we were created to glorify God by serving others, we chose, and apart from Jesus, we still choose to enslave ourselves to sin. And when I use that word sin, what I mean is we live for ourselves at the expense of others. We live for ourselves in defiance of God. And this sin that we're talking about, this allows evil to, gr- to get a foothold in our lives. This is the gateway to evil in our lives and in our world. This sin perpetuates injustice between us. When we get up- upset about what we see in our world, it exists because of the reality of sin in this world. This, this sin that we're talking about violates the peace and order of this world. And therefore, there must be a reckoning. And we all know this deep down, right? We want the wrongs righted. We recognize things are out of whack and that something has got to be done. But it's even more than this, beyond what we see at a, in a wider level. We owe God our lives. We are living on credit. You ever thought about that? We're living on credit, right? We're living on credit, but that credit belongs to God. And yet, because of this sin, the more we charge up living for ourselves at the expense of others, the more we charge up living for ourselves at the expense of others, the further we put ourselves in debt. A debt we cannot pay. Now, whether you're a Christian or you believe in a higher power, at some point we come to recognize that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And maybe we get to a place where, we, where we're willing to admit even a, just of a fraction of a bit that we might be contributing to the problem. That we might be part of the problem, that the world's out of whack, that we probably owe more than we've given. And so if we confront this, even before we, we even hear of Jesus, many of us have this default response. If we, take, if we assume that responsibility, what we do is we say, okay, if the world's off kilter and I bear responsibility for that, if I've taken more than I'm given, then what I'm going to do to try to make things right is I'm going to try to work off what I've done by being a good person. And that seems, seemingly makes sense, except here's the thing. How can we pay back what was not ours to take in the first place? How can we pay back what was not ours to take in the first place? And and more than that, what will we offer when we say we're going to be a good person? What are we going to offer to pay back what we've taken that wasn't ours, not ours in the first place? What are we using that wasn't already belonging to God? We owe everything to begin with, so we have nothing to pay back with. We are Onesimus. We are slaves to our sin with nothing to offer. And biblically, the Bible says that the penalty for our sin is death. The penalty for our sin is death. How do we right the wrongs? Death. The price for our sin. How do we pay back? The price for our sin is sacrifice. I mean, and if you've been with us, we looked at the book of Leviticus many, many uh, months ago, but this is why we have some of those books that we don't read in the Old Testament. 
Because this accounting, if you will, is made clear in the legal and sacrificial system of the Old Testament. That the law states the penalty for our sin is death. The, 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 the sacrificial system, which we, seem, we find so archaic, outlines the price for our sin is a sacrifice. But here's the thing. When we read that, when we study it as we did, what we discover is that that system that God gave to us was a band-aid. It was a stopgap. That system, if you will, was just posting bail. That system, if you will, was just covering the interest. And if you're familiar at all with this system of animal sacrifice, an animal, no matter how perfect or pure, is not equivalent to a person. An animal, no matter how perfect or pure, no matter how many of them you sacrifice, is not equivalent to a person. Which brings us to the gospel. The system was always anticipating something else. An animal, no matter how perfect or pure, is not equivalent to a person, but a perfect, pure, and holy God come down to earth in the flesh can take away the sins of the world. Jesus went to the cross and satisfied the demands of justice. He paid the price for our sin. Jesus Christ took upon himself what we deserved. He covered the debt. He redeemed our lives from the grave. That's the gospel, right? When Satan rises to accuse us, Jesus says, put it on my account. When people around us, sometimes the people even closest to us, point out our many faults, won't let us forget our failures, Jesus says, put that on my account. When our enemies mock our mistakes and gloat over our weaknesses, when our own conscience condemns us and we feel like the biggest losers in the world, Jesus stands before the Father, raises his pierced hands and declares, put that on my account. And when Paul in this letter writes, whatever he owes you, whatever it is, I will pay it back, Paul is following Jesus. He's echoing the gospel by redeeming Onesimus. Just like Jesus set us free by covering the cost of our sin through his willing and loving sacrifice on the cross, Paul sacrifices himself. He offers to pay Onesimus' debt to redeem his life. Now, we don't know this, but assuming Philemon took Paul up on his offer, what then would Onesimus Oh, Philemon, nothing, nothing. Onesimus' debt would be wiped out. This is also, beloved, a reflection of our redemption thanks to Jesus. If our debt has been paid by Christ, if justice has been satisfied by Jesus, then we are completely forgiven. In Christ, we stand before God innocent, it's not that our sin, it's not that our debt never existed. It's that our sin and our debt are no longer held against us. We are redeemed. We are set free because our record has been cleared. Our accounts have been settled. The charges have been transferred. They've been nailed to the cross. The gospel according to Philemon is the gospel of redemption. But another dimension of the gospel that we see here in Philemon is the gospel of reconciliation. We talked about this a lot last week, but here's again to set it up for you. In all of our relationships, all of them, we relate as sinners to other sinners. <laughs> we're all broken, right? We're all flawed. We're, we're all struggling with sin. 
even though Paul offers to redeem Onesimus, Philemon still had to be willing to accept him back. Do you get that? Paul had to be, Philemon had to be willing to accept him back. That's why when Paul writes this letter to Philemon, he invites Philemon to receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother, dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. See what's happening here? Paul, with these words, is putting forth the idea into Philemon's mind of the reconciliation Jesus has brought us through the cross. Philemon is not necessarily predisposed to welcome Onesimus back. And Paul is saying, Philemon, you got to deal with this. We have been all, we've all been redeemed by Christ, but we've also been reconciled by Christ. You can't embrace that reconciliation and not embrace Onesimus. Because you see, again, to hit this one more time, Jesus didn't just redeem us from our sins. That's a part of the gospel. Jesus also reconciled us to God and to each other. Really important you get both parts of that. The gospel is Jesus reconciled us to God and to each other. In taking our place, in satisfying justice and facing death, as we've talked about, Jesus took what we deserved. But in doing this, Jesus also gave us what he earned. In other words, Jesus didn't just put all of our debt on his account and go, okay, I got this. Jesus put his arms around us and declared he was with us and we are with him. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His life becomes our life. That's the gospel. And this is important for us to hear that this is the gospel because many of us come to church, many of us call ourselves Christians and we say we believe we are forgiven by God. We say, oh, I believe I am forgiven by God. And yet I'm fascinated by the number of Christians, people who say that they believe they're forgiven by God, who still picture a disapproving, disappointed father shaking his head at us. And when we have that image, if you have that image in your head, if you understand the gospel of reconciliation, that's not an accurate picture. Our father is not shaking his head disapprovingly and disappointedly. Yeah, I forgave you, fine. Yeah, he paid your bill, but you know, just to get out of my sight. No, when we have that image, Jesus first looks at us and reminds us that he's with us. When our father looks at us, he no longer sees us as pardoned sinners. He sees and accepts us just as he sees and accepts his son, Jesus Christ. Do you get it? Not only has our debt been paid, but our status before God has been reconciled. We live on intimate terms with God, in right relationship with him. Back to the Old Testament, the, the fear of God was put in people. No one can look upon God and live. Jesus has come so that now we can approach the throne of grace. We can come before our Heavenly Father without fear. There are no longer any barriers between us and God, between us and our Father. This is significant in our relationship with God, but this also has implications in our relationship with each other. Because for those of us who still are living in the mindset of looking upon, down upon others as not as good as we are. For those of us who still live with the mindset that people are not of, as deserving of our Father's attention as we are, Jesus turns and looks at us and says, hey, I am with you, but I'm also with them. When we glance, in other words, beloved, when we glance into the face of another person, we are looking at Jesus. Christ is staring back at you 
at every person you encounter. Do you realize that? Do you, are you conscious of that? Christ is staring back at you at every person you encounter. He may be hard to see, but Christ is staring back at you. Another way that the scriptures put this in, in, in the inverse is to reject another person. To not be reconciled is to reject Christ. Paul never comes out explicitly and says this, but this is what he's implying. We cannot claim to love God, as the scriptures say, and hate our brother or sister. That's why Paul, and you get it, he's very subtle about it, but Paul has to remind Philemon he was a sinner just as much in need of God's grace as Onesimus. And that's why Paul doesn't come right out and say, hey, if you reject him, you're rejecting Jesus. Paul softens it just a little, and he puts it this way. Paul asks Philemon to receive or welcome Onesimus as he would Paul. In other words, he says, when you, Philemon, when you look at Onesimus, you look at him the way you would look at me. And what the deeper implication of that is, see Jesus. See Jesus. This, again, is the gospel in human terms, day-to-day -day life. This gospel that, that highlights this work of reconciliation. Like Jesus, Paul is aligning himself with Onesimus. I'm with him. He's with me. Onesimus is not just to be seen as a pardoned criminal because Paul paid his debt. No, Onesimus is to be received. Really, this hit, let this hit home. Onesimus is to be received as a friend and a partner because of Paul. Can you imagine this jump for Philemon? How long has he looked at Onesimus as a slave, as beneath him, as a servant, and also now as a servant who crossed him? who wronged him. And Paul is saying, no, in coming to faith, both of you, you need to see him as more than a slave. You need to see him as a man, not as property. And you need to see him as more than that. You need to see him as a dear brother. He's, I love this. Paul says, he's dear to me, but you may not get it, but you need to look more closely. He's even dearer to you. This is the great reality of Christianity, brothers and sisters. That This is the gospel. There are no distinctions among us. We need to hear that. We know it, but we really need to hear that and see it lived out. Because we, we, we live in a world where we all fulfill different roles, right? I mean, many of us stand differently in society. Some of us are rich. Some of us are poor. Some of us are old. Some of us are young. We all hold varying positions of prominence, leadership, and of authority, we come from different nationalities, races, genders, experiences. But the thing is, when we're here, when we're in Christ at the cross, we have been reconciled both to God and to each other. We are all family. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus. And so maybe like Philemon, like Philemon here in this letter, when we realize we are all family, brothers and sisters in Christ, reconciled to each other, rather than trying to get our own way or demanding our rights, we are to approach our relationships with each other with a deep sense of humility. We are to approach our relationships with each other with a deep sense of humility, relating to others out of gratitude for Christ's work in us, but relating to others also out of recognition of Jesus's presence in them. Do you catch that small, and I, it's so real, that brief moment where you see just a flicker of Paul almost crossing the line? Do you all murmur when I read it? When Paul goes, you owe me your very self. Not that I'm going to call that one. I'm not going to call that out. 
Paul, Paul recognizes that, I, that, that, I, that old habit of, hey, I'm going to call this out. You owe me your very self. But Paul instead goes, no, I'm not going there. I am going to approach you with humility. And out of gratitude of what Christ has done for me, I am going to ask you to recognize the presence of Christ in Onesimus. Paul modeling for Philemon in his interaction with him how he wants him to interact with Onesimus. Beloved, we are to see Christ in each other. We are to treat each other as we would treat Jesus as if he was standing before us. How would that change some of the things that you say to the people that are in your life? If you actually picture Jesus standing before you, would you say some of the things that you say? Would you say it differently? Would you say it at all? How would you act differently if you were not just treating that person as an individual, but treating them as a representative of Christ, of Jesus? The gospel of redemption here in Philemon, the gospel of reconciliation. And the one last aspect of the gospel that we see here in Philemon is the gospel of restoration. You see, for Paul, the life of Jesus is the life that we're called to imitate. You can read all of Paul's other letters, and this is a constant theme. For Paul, the life of Jesus is the life we're called to imitate. And so he actually lives this out in the practical reality of this letter. That's why Paul writes to Philemon and says this. He says, I pray your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. You see, for Paul, the gospel isn't just a story we believe in. For Paul, the gospel is a story we live out. We don't just talk about how Jesus redeems us. We don't just acknowledge our reconciliation in Christ. No, Paul pushes us further through his example in this letter. We are to participate in the work of God's restoration project that our redemption and reconciliation in Christ make possible. That's why Paul gets involved in the lives of Onesimus and Philemon. Do you ever step back and think about that? That Paul could have said, hey, you know what? I'm in jail right now. Hello? I'm in jail right now. I'm working really hard for the gospel. I'm sorry. Can you guys figure this out on your own? I don't get no time for this. Or, okay, fine. Hey, 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 Onesimus, I led you to Christ, okay? Philemon, I led you to Christ. Figure it out, guys. Get it together. I got stuff to do. No, Paul gets involved in the lives of Onesimus and Philemon. He doesn't just tell them to pray the prayer and then send them on their merry way. He commits himself, hear this, see this in this letter. He commits himself to the not so neat and tidy work in progress details of their lives. He invests his time, his energy and resources in seeing them both become individually, but together who they were called to be in Christ. This is the gospel. This is the gospel lived out. And yet we live in a world, we live at a time where, do you notice this as I do? Where more and more we are telling ourselves, we are being told that our faith is a private matter. It troubles me greatly that we are framing our faith as a private matter. And I'll tell you why. Because faith is never private. That is a bogus setup. And I'll tell you why. Because we share our faith. When, we, when what we say has something to do with what we're doing. You know, if we can't reduce faith to something that's just inside of us. It's just my inner thoughts and feelings. That doesn't make any sense because what we truly believe, you know it as well as I do. I want to know what you believe. Our, what we believe is evidenced less by our Sunday morning language and more through our Monday to Saturday living. 
Our faith is tested. Our faith is tried. Our faith is true when it's exercised in the messiness of actual community. Our faith is tested, tried, and true when it's imperfect people mutually seeking to follow and obey Jesus together. That's when we find out what we believe, who we believe in, who we follow. We can talk as the day is long, but brass tacks, the rubber hits the road when we get involved in the nitty-gritty of our lives together. And, And again, you see this in this letter because Paul's faith in the gospel His conviction of living it out is evidenced, I think, by his willingness to openly address topics here in this letter that most of us, even as Christians, we tend to avoid. And those two topics, by the way, are money and politics. Following Jesus, life in the Spirit, doing the work of gospel restoration, asks us to wrestle with some hard economic and political questions. And many of us, again, tend to separate those things from the gospel, But Paul calls it right out here. Do you catch this? Paul basically puts it out there when he says, Philemon, are you willing to lose the profit of a slave for the sake of partnership with a fellow servant, a brother in Christ? You don't think there's financial implications there? Philemon, are you willing to buck a system by setting a precedent and not taking legal action, by setting this slave free, by treating someone of a lower class, someone who's publicly wronged and shamed you as an equal. You don't think there are political ramifications for this? You don't think this is gonna cause a stir in the community? You don't think other slaves are gonna start to get ideas? Beloved, the work of gospel restoration requires that we think deeply and honestly Following Jesus does not leave us the option of not thinking at all or looking the other way or leaving our relationships and communities at status quo. And again, as a pastor, it troubles me deeply just in Christian community. And I witnessed this. I didn't witness this where I sat, where where I was sitting, where you sit, but now I witness this standing where I stand. We get together and many of us know we sense stuff that's going on in each other's lives, but we don't get involved. We sense that the marriage is in trouble. We sense that there's broken relationship there. We sense that someone's drinking again. We sense that someone has a problem. And we all just kind of go, well, I hope they figure it out. I'll pray for them. We don't want to offend them. We don't want to say anything. We don't want to maybe put ourselves out there. But what's ironic about that is all of a sudden, as it always does, when everything blows up, when the divorce happens, when they're back in rehab, when they're not talking to each other, all of a sudden we all get confessional. Yeah, I kind of suspected that was going on. Yeah, I kind of saw the signs. Yeah, I, I did. Where, where were you? What, where, where were you? It's a conspiracy of silence that violates the very message of the gospel. We are called to get involved in the restorative work that God is doing, and it's messy business. You're going to get hurt, but no hurt that God can't heal. You're going to take some bumps and bruises, but it's worth it rather than just letting things dis- be destroyed letting things implode. Following Jesus, life in the Spirit asks us to consider in every area of our lives where we are being called to become priests, offering sacrifices to others. That's an image that the Scripture has. We are priests. Where in your life, practically, tangibly, actually, are you being called to offer a sacrifice on behalf of another person? Where are we hearing the call to be ministers of grace? Ambassadors of love, where are the places, the relationships where we are being called to do the restorative work of the gospel, the transformative labor of the kingdom? 
Where are we being called, my friends, not just to say the right thing? We're all great at saying the right thing. But doing the harder, slower, and more impactful work of fostering righteousness. The answers are not easy to these questions. <laughs> the answers are not easy. But the questions aren't leaving. And the idea here in Philemon is simple. Christ Jesus died for us. He died for us so that we might live a new way. And that new way of living is not living for ourselves, but living for God by serving each other. We don't just believe in the gospel. That's not why we're here. We live out the gospel together. Together we harness the power, the power, the power, the spiritual power of grace, faith, hope, and love. This power that we are given individually, but this power that is magnified when we come together. We harness this power to change the world. Do you believe that? Power to change the world. It is not our power, but God's power in Christ through the Holy Spirit working through us. It is the power of the kingdom. It changes the world, and it changes the world one person at a time. One person at a time. And I wouldn't balk if any of you in hearing this go, yeah, I just, I don't see it. So fast forward with me. I want to, I've been waiting to share this with you for four weeks. Fast forward with me from this letter in history, not that long, several decades later to a time known as the time of the early church fathers. And if you've never heard that expression before, the early church fathers are basically the generation that comes after Paul and the apostles, okay? In that period of time, there is a letter written by a man named Ignatius. And Ignatius has done much for our faith as we understand it and practice it now. But there's one letter in particular by Ignatius. Ignatius is the, was the bishop of Antioch, and he wrote this letter to the churches in Ephesus. And in this letter, Ignatius addresses the pastor of the church in Ephesus several times. Do you want to take a guess at the name of the man he addresses, the name of the pastor in that church in Ephesus? Onesimus. Onesimus. Now, could this be the runaway slave turned redeemed sinner, reconciled brother, restored believer in Jesus Christ? I actually think it can. Because one of the most compelling reasons I think he's referring to the same Onesimus we're hearing about in this letter is that in the letter that Ignatius writes, he explicitly uses the language and themes of Paul's correspondence with Philemon. It's almost like he's looking back. Added to this, have you ever thought about this? How, how did we come to have this letter? I mean, Romans, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, I get that. We have some personal letters to Timothy, but how did we get this letter? I mean, it's like all of a sudden in the midst of these New Testament letters, like someone threw in a personal, you know, a really personal letter. I mean, it totally stands out. How did we get it? Who was mindful of saving it? Well, let me share this with you. There is good scholarship. Many scholars believe that there's good evidence to suggest that Onesimus is the one who not only preserved this letter, but also gathered all the letters of Paul into one place so that we'd have them today. What I'm trying to say to you is the greatest picture of the gospel is a transformed life. And here in this letter over these last few weeks, we have witnessed the beginnings of the dramatic transformation, the dramatic makeover of Philemon's life. And later on in another letter of the church, 
we're able to perceive the ripple effect of his transformation. Through the legacy of a runaway slave, Onesimus, who was redeemed, reconciled, and restored to become not just a part of the church, but a leader of the church in Ephesus. We don't know how many lives Onesimus touched, but we do know that Onesimus remained a servant of Christ until his death. History tells us he was martyred. He was martyred. Onesimus was martyred during the reign of Emperor Trajan. And the reason they killed him? They killed him because he refused to deny Christ. Is your life a reflection of the gospel? Is your life a reflection of the gospel? If it's not, what story are you living? If we believe the gospel is the story that saves our lives, if we believe the gospel can, is the story that can save the lives of others, why would we live any other story? Why would you live any other story? One more thing to chew on. One of the reasons I also find Philemon so compelling is because I think we have in this story, this letter, perhaps one of the most famous stories that we have in all of Scripture coming to life. The gospel lived out, but one of the most famous stories, literally not just a story anymore, but lived out in life. And the story that I'm referring to, we call it a parable, is the parable of the prodigal son. And if you haven't thought about it up until this point, I want you to think about what you know about that story and transpose it on this story of Philemon, Onesimus, and Paul. And it'll blow your mind. Because it's no longer a story Jesus is telling anymore. It's a story that Paul is living. Consider Onesimus, the prodigal son. Onesimus, the runaway slave, the one who needs to be redeemed to come back. Onesimus, who represents all of us as prodigals, all of us who are slaves to sin, trying to make it on our own in the world and ending up with nothing. And then you have Philemon. Is he not the elder brother? Still living at home? Living at home, struggling with reconciliation. As Paul is outside the door saying, hey, Onesimus was dead, but now he's alive. And Philemon's going, I cannot believe you are doing this. Cannot believe you're asking me this. You've, I, I brought you to faith in Christ. Everything I have is yours. Philemon, come on. Yeah, but, yeah, but. And we're all the elder son. We're all Philemon's, right? I mean, we've all come to faith, but even in the midst of coming to faith in Christ, even though we all believe we've been forgiven by God, even though we all believe we've been reconciled to God, yet in the midst of believing that, don't we all struggle with forgiving someone else? Don't we all struggle to be reconciled to someone else? Don't we find ourselves just like Philemon, feeling this tension, feeling this pull of someone speaking into our lives, telling us, hey, if you have come into the family, you've got to stop lording yourself over others. We're not talking masters and slaves anymore. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. The prodigal son Onesimus, the elder brother Philemon, and of course, Paul. Paul as the mediating father. Paul who stands between two brothers trying to bring restoration. Paul living out what we are called to do, which is to reflect the image of our Father, the person of Christ, the power of the Spirit to lost and runaways. Beloved, who are you in this story? We've been in this for a month. 
as we've been going through it, who are you in this story? Because what I want to suggest to you is that this story represents the trajectory of the Christian life. This story represents our journey in faith. Everyone, we move from prodigals, runaway slaves, to elder siblings, to ultimately being a reflection of our Father. Where are you in this story? Are you still running? Are you still prodigal? Are you still a fugitive? Thinking you can figure this out, you'll make it on your own. Are you still wheeling and dealing out there? Rehearsing your speech, saying, hey, can't we just forget the past and move on? Or do you find yourself still living at home? Living at home, working for your dad, you've been forgiven, you've been redeemed, you've been reconciled, but every now and again you get kind of ticked off at God, kind of ticked off at your father. What's he doing here? What's she doing here? How the heck are they allowed in? Don't you see the work I'm doing for you? Don't you understand what they did? And you find yourself, even though you're sitting inside the church with your father going, you're really outside the kingdom. You're outside the kingdom. Or have you come to a place in your life and God brings us to this place where you recognize you've been redeemed. You're not running anymore. You know what? And you're not fighting with God anymore. You're, not, you're all about reconciliation. You know what? You've made your peace. You don't want to fight anymore. You get it. And in that place, which is so good, of no longer running, of no longer fighting, you're comfortable. And you're like, you know what? Ah. And God is whispering to you saying, ah, you're not done yet. Hey, hey, you're not done yet. That feeling you have right now, that sense of peace, that sense of wholeness, you know how you're no longer running anymore? You know how you're no longer fighting with me? I want that for everybody. Get up. Get out. Reflect my image. Go be me. Go be the one reaching out to someone like you who once ran away. Go be me to someone who's still living at home and can't get out of the house. Are you being a representative of your father? Who are you in this story? Because we're destined. We're called. Every single one of us to move from slaves to sin to ambassadors of the kingdom. That's the gospel. What's the gospel according to your life? As a child of our father, as a follower of Jesus, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, all descriptions of what we are, who we are, as a child of our Father, a follower of Jesus, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, are you a conduit of blessing? Are you an agent of redemption? Are you a minister of reconciliation? Are you an investor in restoration? Do you believe Jesus Christ in you can save the world one person at a time? And again, I wouldn't begrudge you if you're sitting here going, man, that just sounds like a, a fantasy. So why not just start with the person right in front of you? Don't worry about saving the world. Why not just start about the person right in front of you? We've been in this for four weeks and I've poked and I've prodded as God has poked and prodded me for you to be mindful of who that person is. And I would imagine for many of you, that face, that name is just not going away. So why not start with the person right in front of you? Love them. Serve them. Help them. And then let the Lord lead you from there. Love God. Love your neighbor. That's not just the great commandment. That's the gospel. Love God. Love your neighbor. That's not just the great commandment. That's just not the gospel. That's what we have in the letter to Philemon. 
That's what Paul did for Onesimus when he wrote to Philemon. That's what Philemon did for Onesimus when he embraced him not as a runaway slave, but as a forgiven brother in Christ. That's what Onesimus did for Paul in serving and supporting him. And beloved, that's what all of us are called to be and do. Because you see, the more that we actualize the promise of the gospel, the more we experience and we cultivate, we multiply redemption, reconciliation and restoration in our relationships, each and every one of them, the more we actualize, we live out the gospel, the more we are living the resurrection in everyday community. So let's do it. Amen.